All right. This is the Coach Haas Podcast, sponsored by Sports Rehab PA. And today we have another special guest on. Today we have Dr. Ari Grice, who is a board-certified physician who specializes in non-operative treatment of spinal and musculoskeletal disorders. He's the director of medical cannabis or the medical cannabis department at Rothman. Um, he also is the senior fellow Institute uh, of Emerging Health Professions and the Lambert Center for the Study of Medicinal Cannabis and Hemp. His interest is in treatment of chronic pain with cannabis as an alter alternative to opioids. So Mike, uh, Mike did his due diligence and he brought on Dr. Grice here. So um, Michael, I thank you for that. How's things going? Things are going good. Yeah, Dr. Grice and I used to uh, kick it back at Rothman KOP, the old building, when I first started working and he was nice enough to let me shadow and just learn and see things, you know, because a lot of stuff you don't see in school. So had a chance to, you know, see a bunch of different things with patients, understand a little bit more about how treatments are going on the physician side. We got to kind of coach treat a lot of patients. So it was an awesome experience. That's awesome. Well, we're going, to, uh, we're going to introduce Dr. Grice here, and then he can get into a little bit of his background and his experience here. So, Dr. Grice, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, it's, really, it's really great. This is actually my first podcast that I've done. And, uh, very cool, very cool. And, uh, yeah, a lot of love to, to Mike St. George for, for inviting me. We, we always had a lot of fun working together, and uh, every patient I've seen that has worked with him has just said how great he is and uh you know even right from the beginning when he was uh, right out of right out of school he, he's, he's been killing it so thanks, um yeah of course my answer was yes when it when given this invitation so thank you guys awesome awesome yes we do appreciate your time so um well without like any other further ado here let's kind of get into your background uh we want to talk about obviously like i introduced in the beginning uh you using cannabis as an alternative to opioids but kind of yeah. give the background of how you how you started into this and you know give us a little bit about it yeah i mean i i trained uh, i did my residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation out in seattle at the university of washington and, and that was uh between 2004 and 7 and it's interesting it, looking back because um very few states had legalized medical marijuana or cannabis um, back then, uh, this is you know, 2004 to seven. Uh, but Washington State uh, legalized medical cannabis in, in 1998. It was kind of right after California, and so before there were dispensaries where you could go purchase cannabis in, in the state of Washington. Uh, patients who had uh, severe uh, like medical conditions could have a, a note from a doctor saying they have a medical condition that could benefit from cannabis. And so in my rehab clinics, we had patients with multiple sclerosis and spinal cord injuries and all sorts of crazy neurodegenerative diseases that had licenses to grow their own cannabis. And I had this experience with them in these clinics as a, as a young doc where they would tell me like, I've tried everything, nothing has helped me with my nerve pain, I've been on the opioids, I got addicted to them, I had to stop and cannabis helps me. And, you know, I never thought it would be part of my practice, but I, I, I ended up doing a fellowship in sports and spine rehabilitation uh, in Philly. Um, and 
it was like during my fellowship that I saw like the rampant use of opioids. I mean, we had drug reps every, every week coming in, giving us these free lunches and recommending opioids for any type of chronic pain. And I never felt comfortable with it. I mean, it was daunting to see how, you know, there was no end in sight. You know, you have a person who has a chronic arthritic condition. This wasn't a pill that was going to be temporary. These were, these were meds that they were going to have to be on for the rest of their lives. Wow. And the answer from the drug reps was, if they say their pain is worsening, spiking on these meds, then just increase the dosages. Wow. And so we had tons and tons of patients on mega dosages of, you know, OxyContin, et cetera. And I just kind of like thought this, this is just not a solution to, and going to be a setup for big time problems. And, you know, lo and behold, after practicing at Rothman Orthopedics for 10 years, you know, we, we saw the ramifications of that, that type of prescribing pattern. And we saw really a, a crisis in the country happen and it's still happening. So, you know, once I was out on my own, I sort of did everything that I could to help people choose alternatives to opioids. And this was before medical cannabis was legal in Pennsylvania. It's only been, you know, it's only been a few years. Um, and so when, when cannabis became legal um, in 2018 and leading up to it, when we knew it was going to happen, I just thought this was an opportunity that we couldn't pass up on. And um, you know, Rothman Orthopedics is really known for being innovative and forward thinking. Yeah. And, and a lot of my colleagues saw that, you know, despite the fact that cannabis is still considered illegal or a schedule one substance at the federal level, that, that this opioid crisis was such a big problem that, that this made sense. And, and, you know, the approach that we have at Rothman Orthopedics is not just to try new treatments, but to actually try to study them and to see what works and what doesn't work. And so as a result, you know, I've, I've, they, they allowed me basically to start this program and to start certifying patients for access to medical cannabis. Uh, and, and really the, the thing that I, that I recommended that they, I think thought was, was going to work was that we collect data on these patients, find out what they're using, uh, what their, what their pain levels were, what their functional scores were on validated outcome measure scores, and also to look at their opioid usage. And, you know, we, we are actually you know, on the brink of publishing some of our findings. And, and it shows that, you know, in select patients, they're able to reduce or get off of opioids, you know. And, and so I think it is a viable alternative. And it's been really encouraging to see, you know, lots of my patients try it for the very first time. I mean, most of my patients are newbies to cannabis and they've never gotten high or used it recreationally. And they're really kind of just desperate out of other options. And either failed opioids or just are downright afraid of trying opioids because of the addiction potential or family histories and things like that. So, um, so it's it's been an interesting last two and a half years. But um, you know, as a result, I have a good amount of experience. I have almost a thousand patients that I've certified. Wow! And um, you know, there's there's still a lot of interest. Mm -hmm. um, so the current focus with the treatment. And the and the patient population. What would you say? Um, you mean like which patients? I'm. I'm yeah, yeah. So like, what it, what what's the current? Fo are, are they mostly musculoskeletal disorders, or are they 
uh, you know, are they neurological disorder? Yeah, it, it's actually a, a mixed bag. I would say the, the, the vast majority, I mean, if you look at the numbers, chronic back pain is like number one. Yeah. And so a lot of this is degenerative arthritic conditions. Um, but unfortunately, we have people who had, you know, pretty bad neurological injuries, spinal cord injuries, um, you know, huge disc herniations that needed surgery, but the outcome wasn't perfect afterwards. Um, you know, complications after trauma or, or surgery where, where there's a chronic pain. So it could be musculoskeletal orthopedic stuff. And sometimes it is, neuro, a lot of times it's neuropathic pain. Um, I have a lot of patients who have just fibromyalgia and, you know, you know not, not, not a degenerative thing, but some sort of central pain sensitization syndrome. And, you know, cannabis is interesting because a lot of these patients that have chronic pain, whether it's neuropathic or, or musculoskeletal, you know, what comes with that pain is a whole host of other issues with sleep disorders, depression, anxiety. And, and that's kind of the, the wild thing about cannabis. It has all these different chemicals or cannabinoids in it that have been you know, shown to help a, a wide variety of symptoms, you know, not just pain. And so for, for a lot of folks, it, it replaces a lot of their prescription medications. You know, you have people who are on three or four different pain meds that kind of can scale it down to cannabis and maybe an NSAID or something like that. Um, so, so I think that that's a huge part of my population. And then I do have uh, some, some sports, um, younger sports athletes that, that are, you know, whether it's overuse injuries or micro tears and tendons and things like that, where, where, where you're not going to inject them or you're not going to do surgery on them. Um, but they, they need an alternative. Um, and I'm also doing some work with the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, as their pain management doc. And, you know, there's interest, uh, from, from a lot of players in the NFL, you know, with regards to, you know, sports, uh, injuries and recovery from just athletics in general. Um, so yeah, there, there's, there, there's a lot of different types of, uh, people coming to me for interest, but it is interesting to see how most or more majority are, are, are elderly folks, um, with arthritic conditions who, who definitely are not looking to get high or intoxicated and, you know, are just looking for something to ease some of their discomfort, you know, with the understanding that there's no perfect medication out there for some of these conditions. Right. Right. You know. What? So, um, okay, I'm sorry, Mike. I was going to say, um, how about some conditions like, um, you know, chronic regional pain syndrome? Seeing so, you know, it with that, um, you know, what is it showing with that? And then also, what about because you've seen some stuff come out even with things like uh, like Parkinson's? Um, were you implemented with that? And is it, does it show evidence to reduce the tremors, the fascinating gait, or is that just you know some things that there's not enough research to show. Maybe it's one isolated case and someone says, hey, look at this, and they blow it up. Like, is it really showing good results with that, or, you know? Well, well, first of all, um, I will say that, um, yes, there, um, there, are, there are patients that I have with chronic regional pain syndrome, and unfortunately, some of the most, you know, problematic and difficult-to-treat conditions, you know, that, that are turning to cannabis. I personally don't see a lot of movement disorder patients, but Parkinson's patients who have uh, chronic pain have told me anecdotally that they have noticed, you know, a dramatic improvement in their tremors and their mobility when they use cannabis. I, I've seen some of the videos on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people like 
shaking like crazy and they smoke or, or, or vape cannabis. And I mean, it's such a dramatic change, uh, which is fascinating. Um, but, but I, I think there's so much that needs to be studied still, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, these, these are difficult studies to do a lot because of the federal regulatory restrictions, you know, mm-hmm. having cannabis remain a is our efforts. Um, but to be honest with you, other countries don't have these restrictions and are moving forward with this types of research. You know, you see a lot of research being done in Canada and Israel, you know, even in Australia and other countries in Europe. And so I think we're going to learn a lot uh, in, the, in the next few decades. And, you know, I'm doing my best to try and contribute to that um, data. But, you know, there's a difference between anecdotal and observational data and, and, and really, you know, controlled trials where there's a blinded arm. Uh, but I think, I think we're going to see that. And, and if you look at the history of cannabis, you know, the receptors that we have in our body, the part of the endocannabinoid system, these were really just identified in the early 90s. So that's not that long when you think about it. We, we just in the last few decades, three decades, started to understand how these cannabinoids attach to receptors in our body and affect our human physiology. And that's, that's undeniable now. And, you know, we're, we're seeing that that type of science is, is, is soon going to be taught in med schools and graduate degrees are being developed uh, in order to, you know, kind of spread the word and the knowledge about, you know, the endocannabinoid system, because uh, it really is an integral part of our human physiology. And I think that now that we have some of the basic science down, and I think there's still a lot we're exploring, you know, these, these clinical trials on humans need to start happening. Um, and, and, in, and in the United States and in other countries, there have been decent studies on animals, you know, preclinical studies on rats and mice, right. which suggest that there really could be a role for treating inflammation and pain and movement disorders, brain injuries, you know, other neurodegenerative problems. Um, in humans. And so I, I think, I think that's going to happen, but the, the, the regulatory restrictions are profound and the research is difficult to do basically. So Can you really like in layman terms? I'm sorry, Mike, am I talking over you here? In no. layman terms, can you kind of just break down for the audience and explain like what actually like the CBD or the cannabinoids, what do they do to help with the pain? Yeah, so, you know, CBD is a pretty interesting compound. Um, and as, as many people may or may not know, that you, you, can, you can find CBD in hemp, which by definition has less than 0.3% THC in it. And hemp was not too long ago legalized in, in the United States as part of the Farm Bill, which basically removed hemp from the Controlled Substance Act. Uh, unfortunately, when cannabis was made illegal or prohibited back in 1937, and then again by the Controlled Substance Act in 1970, hemp went with it. So just by virtue of being guilty by association, mm-hmm. hemp, which you can't get high or intoxicated from, 
was, was basically made illegal in this country. And so I think people realized hemp has a lot of value, not, not just as a medicinal value, but, you know, industrial uses, you can do a lot of things with hemp, make, you know, clothing and rope and, uh, you know, hemp seeds can, I mean, I use a hemp seed powder, protein powder, and it's got yeah, a lot, yeah, I've seen that. a lot of really great, um, you know, things in it, like essential amino acids and things like that. Uh, so it's a, it's a food supplement, but, but CBD is prevalent in hemp and also found in, in, in cannabis or medical marijuana, what some people would refer to. Um, and so the interesting thing about CBD or cannabidiol is that it, it's, it's not intoxicating, uh, but it, it has a variety of different potential mechanisms of action that have been identified mostly through preclinical pre studies on, on animals. And so um, there have been some interesting studies showing that when you, you know, induce an inflammatory arthritis in these animals, that CBD uh, can work as an anti-inflammatory and an antioxidant. Um, and, it, and it seems to have some uh, neuroprotective properties. Uh, it's, it's been proven to help with seizure disorders in children with very rare seizure, seizure disorders. So uh, that's why um, Epidiolex, which is a, a cannabis-based CBD, purified CBD product, was approved by the FDA um, at the end of last year. I did uh, see that. There was a company called like uh, Black Charlotte or something like that. And there was Charlotte's that, Web. Yes, yes. And there was that girl that was having like 100 seizures a day. So I actually listened to them on a podcast. And exactly. They talked, yeah. Exactly. So that's where this all started. I mean, out of desperation, uh, families, parents of children with these um, very difficult to treat seizure disorders mm. uh, who saw their kids basically failing to thrive, who had tried every anti-seizure drug uh, under the sun, and they were still having hundreds of seizures a month. And, and these are kids that were really struggling. I mean, not being able to participate in school, some of them were nonverbal. So again, out of desperation, some of these parents illegally obtained um, CBD uh, and, and gave it to their kids and saw dramatic results. And I think this is what prompted, you know, real science. So, you know, th this, 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 this started off in the UK and they did control trials with a, with a blinded, a placebo control. And then some of these trials were done in the US and, you know, major reductions in seizure activity in these kids. And so, you know, we're, we're starting to see uh, CBD used for lots of things. And I think there's been some good and bad that has come out of this, you know, and unfortunately, uh, you know, it's being touted as this like miracle cure for lots of different things. And you're seeing CBD and in, in everything, like in dog treats and deodorant, toothpaste, you know, it's like, you don't need CBD in everything and it's not good for everything. But, but it's interesting because it has somewhat wide ranging applications and it's weird to see a chemical that does so many different things, um, you know, work on, you know, at a neuronal level to as, as an inhibitor and to work as an anti-inflammatory and antioxidant. Um, so it's kind of wild. And without a lot of without a lot of side effects, too. Right. I mean, it's extremely well tolerated, even at higher dosages. And, and that is one of the, the, the bigger problems that we see in my opinion with CBD is 
okay, CBD might be great for certain conditions, but we don't know what the dosage should be. And it's expensive. And, you know, there's a lot of people and companies that are making a, making a lot of money marketing it for certain things that it may or may not help. And, the, and, and what I see uh, in terms of what's available online or in retail stores is really very low dose products. You know, so if you look at the dosages in these kids, they're taking hundreds of milligrams of CBD and it's really expensive. You know, this is a pharmaceutical drug and a lot of research went into it. But, you know, you have people taking 10 or 15 milligrams of CBD and not sure if it's helping. And I, I think the problem is you might need a lot more than what people are taking. It's expensive. And most folks are just not going to be able to afford hundreds of milligrams of CBD a day. Yeah. That was going to be kind of my next question. Like, how do you know what's a good source and then what's kind of like some watered down nonsense? Because I know in previous podcasts I listened to where they might have talked about it. They were saying there's certain things you look for in terms of like the smell and what it maybe tastes like or potency or something. I mean, can you add something to that about what? Sure. Things? I mean, th this is a huge point. It's an unregulated market. You know, before... Right. Before the FDA stepped in and sort of approved Epidiolex as a pharmaceutical drug to treat seizures, it, it was really a free-for-all. There was no oversight. So people were making hemp products, uh, claiming to have CBD in them. One of my friends and colleagues did a study that was published in the Journal of the Amer American Medical Association. Basically, what they did was they, they obtained hemp-derived CBD products online from like something like 30 different sources, and they did analytical testing on these products. And what they found was wide-ranging results. Some of these products had no CBD in them. Some of them had a ton of THC in them, which uh, yeah. supposedly wasn't supposed, to, wasn't supposed to be present. Surprise. And yeah, exactly. And, and, and also, What's even more scary is some of them had heavy metals in them and other. Uh, Does it matter where the hemp plant is being grown? Like I think it was like a hemp field next to like a factory, then the runoff right. coming to. Okay, yeah. So, so obviously, you know, there are there are standard practices that need to be followed, and and some of the more reputable hemp companies, you know, use organic farming techniques, and they use a. Uh, third-party testers so you have a third party test your product in each batch that you make and that's you get you know order charlotte's web or i like another one called lazarus natural yes i've heard of that yeah these are companies that have pretty substantial dosed cbd products they're not priced through the roof and they have a they have you can look up the label of, of every bottle that you buy there's a third party that's certified that what they say is in the bottle is actually in the bottle. And so you really need that. Uh, and we have that in, in state-run cannabis programs like Pennsylvania where these, these products are tested. The plants and the final product are tested for accuracy uh, as to which cannabinoids are in there and to also make sure that these other things like heavy metals and pesticides aren't present. Uh, so you really have to do your due diligence and research and make sure that you're buying a, a good product um, and then you have to like wonder whether or not the dose is right. And, but, but, but to your point, Joe, it's pretty well tolerated and there have not been a, a lot of reported side effects. Um, I think one of the big questions that researchers like myself have is really how important is THC or other cannabinoids when you're using 
cannabis in general, right? CBD may be good in and of itself for certain things like seizures, but you know, I have a lot of patients that say, hey, I tried hemp CBD. I even got it from Charlotte's Web and it didn't do a whole lot for me. And then they end up getting certified for access to medical cannabis and they add you know, a little bit of THC to their CBD regimen and then they see something happen or they notice something. So does the THC then become the catalyst for the CBD? Is that? Well, here's, here's one of the central theories is that, you know, cannabis is another reason it's difficult to treat. It's not a single molecule. When we do pharmaceutical research, you know, you can study a very specific thing like ibuprofen or acetaminophen, and you see what that chemical does. But cannabis is hundreds of chemicals. And so, you know, it's generally thought that there is some sort of a, a entourage effect where these cannabinoids work together uh, to, to create a, a physiological response. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, do you need THC and how much? Uh, because the problem with THC is that it can be intoxicating and cause impairment. And so what we're looking for is the right dosage or amount of all these chemicals. And that's what's tricky. You know, you it, yeah. it's costly to do this research. There are regulatory restrictions, but let's just say they said you can do whatever research you want to do studies with, there's, there's a million possibilities. You know, you could look at so many different cannabinoids, so many different uh, ratios or dosages of THC and CBD in combination. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what I find that is a lot of what we see in, in the clinic now is a lot of experimenting. It's a lot of trial and error. Uh, and the main thing that I help people do is avoid, you know, excessive intoxication and, and basically help them start to dose it properly. And also just to kind of give them guidance on, on CBD dosing, because I think a lot of people are just not seeing results because they're, they're taking too low of a dose. Right. All right. So for like, I know you were talking about, um, with some of the patients with the, um, the epilepsy, but in a situation where say a kid comes or an athlete comes in 19 years old, so they can make decisions on their own, but they're in college playing a sport. They don't want to use an opioid to help with some of the pain that they're dealing with. Would you prescribe CBD to them? Yeah, I think it's easy to rationalize the use of CBD um, in, in younger patients. You know, the, the, you know we're, we're giving it to, to kids, to children. Right. Um, and, and again, I think the this, this safety um, profile is there. But the question becomes, you know, what are the ramifications of THC in a developing brain? And I, I use a lot of caution with that. I'm pretty conservative. I, 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 don't, I don't recommend, you know, um, THC for, for people under 25, the age of 25, unless there's a really good reason. You yeah. know, I've had, I've had spinal cord injury patients that were 17, 18. Uh, I've had cancer patients with metastatic cancer all over their body in severe pain who are intolerant to opioids um, who I've certified. And I think there's a way to use it, but I think that there, there are some potential negative ramifications of THC on the developing brain with regards to memory and cognitive development that we have to be aware of. But, you know, again, there is a difference between recreational cannabis use and medicinal cannabis use. And in my opinion, 
so much of that has to do with the dosing of THC. So no one has really, we, we know what happens to teenagers who use cannabis in, with high dosages of THC at a young age, right? Kids who start using uh, marijuana for recreational use at the age of 13 oftentimes develop things like cannabis use disorder and learning and memory issues. But we have no idea what a low dose THC might do for a developing brain, someone who has a chronic pain condition or a chronic neurological condition. So, so there's so much we don't know, but you know, in medicine, we're, we're, we're generally very conservative. And I think you know, there are risks with, with any type of treatment. And I think that it's easy to recommend CBD to a young athlete. Um, and uh, I think there may be a role for, you know, for other cannabinoids in, in treating, you know, musculoskeletal injuries, disorders like that. Do you think the population has a little bit of a misunderstanding about it? Because one, it was kind of a banned substance, you know, it's still not 100% legal. But when they hear, you know, marijuana, they think about, you know, the dime bag being passed off on the street that's probably laced with other synthetic stuff and they think of just smoking it in a joint. They're not seeing that it's something that comes from a plant and there's, like you're saying, a little bit more controlled of these, of these substances being used, you know, to help something, that that's the far extent of abuse and exploitation. It's unbelievable how the stigma has lingered and how people still... To this day, you know, I have patients who I'll say, hey, have you thought about trying a, a CBD from hemp? And just, again, guilty by association. They hear hemp, they think marijuana, they think um, stoners and hippies and, and illegal substances, and they, they really don't understand the difference. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, and there's still a lot of stigma around it, but I, I have to say it's it's been encouraging to see the changes. You know, I have, and just today I had an 80 year old patient who came with her daughter, whose husband is a police officer. You know, and and I've had other patients who who just never thought in a million years they would try cannabis to treat pain because years ago they punished their kids for using it and things like that. And so I think people are realizing more and more and more that um, it has medicinal properties uh, and there's a safety level with cannabis that is you know, much greater than a lot of other legal recreational substances. I mean, we all know people who have problems with prescription pills and with alcohol. Yep. And these are substances that kill people. Like, Thousands and thousands of people a year die from things like tobacco, alcohol, and opioids. And these are all legal substances. And, and you, can't, you can't die from cannabis use. You know, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't cause end organ damage like kidney and liver disease. And, you know, it, 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 I, it has some addictive properties, but again, nothing in comparison to these other, other substances. So I think... I think people are recognizing that, you know, that, that there's a safety level with cannabis that is very acceptable and that more and more there are, there are certain patient populations that could benefit from it. And, and I think cancer is really the big one. I mean, right. we, we all know someone who has had cancer 
And the, the side effects from chemotherapy, you know, including nausea and vomiting and loss of appetite are so profound. And I've had multiple family members who, who I've seen firsthand literally hadn't eaten in 36 hours, use cannabis and their appetite comes back and they're able to put down a whole meal. And so when you see that firsthand, it's remarkable. And I think people who never thought that it should be legal or would be used as a medicine have heard from their family members that this, this actually does work. And there's, there's good research behind it now showing you know, that, that these chemicals help with those types of symptoms. So, so there's, there is definitely a stigma still, and there's a lot of information. I think, though, if you look at some of the recent surveys, you know, an overwhelming majority of our population now recognizes that cannabis has medicinal uses and probably should be legal, you know, for people, for, for patients that, that, that might benefit from it. You know, whether or not you think it should be legal from a recreational standpoint, that may, may be a different topic of conversation. Right. But, you know, none of us want to be withheld treatment, especially if we have cancer or some chronic pain like complex regional pain syndrome. None of us would want to be restricted from having access to a plant that might help us, especially after failing more conservative treatment options. Sure. I mean, it's just crazy to think that people in certain states where cannabis is still illegal, even for medical purposes, they have no choice other than to break the law or suffer and take uh, other medicines that, that may or may not help or that they may or may not tolerate. Yeah. So, I mean, my thought process is it's, uh, you know, it's obviously a plant. It's given by Mother Nature, so it's grown naturally. You know, you see a lot of things that I feel like over the course of the years looking at when you may have something man-made or synthetic, there's all these, like, side effects. And if you actually look at the label, even just Advil, Tylenol, all the side effects that could happen, I mean, it's astounding. So when I've listened to talks about the, you know, the CBD, and even when you came and gave a talk to our company about it, it seemed like there is, you said that echocannabinoid system, basically something in the human body that has a connection with the plant. I mean, can you describe that? I mean, there's a little bit more as to why I guess they're finding that it seems like we have like a symbiotic relationship with it more than we actually really knew. Because I heard that that runner's high that people get isn't really endorphins. It's actually the echocannabinoid system or something that's being released through that. Yeah, it's kind of wild. I mean, you bring up a great topic of conversation because you know, asking that question why I think is so interesting. And, and, and if you look at it from an evolutionary standpoint, the reason we have these receptors in our body is because for thousands and thousands of years, we've grown up with this plant, right? So, you know, there is a real symbiotic relationship between, you know, humans and the earth and the, um, you know, plants that, that are found in our ecosystem. And so when, when, when humans thousands and thousands of years ago saw this plant, used this plant for a variety of reasons, you know, we, we literally evolved to have these receptors all over our body. And, 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 you know, again, these are receptors that were first identified in the early 1990s, but we now know that they're everywhere. You know, there, there have been at least two receptors, uh, CB1 and CB2, that have been identified. And we know that uh, the CB1 receptors are throughout our central nervous system, so brain and spinal cord, but also in, in other areas. And that CB2 receptors are more out in the periphery and part of our immune function. And so 
this, 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 this receptor system is really like a widespread neuromodulatory system, meaning it, it helps our bodies, our, our bodies communicate with other parts of our, 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 uh, of our brain, spinal cord, and organs. Um, and it's kind of like a self-regulating system. So it, it participates in homeostasis. And, you know, you could ask, why do we have nicotine receptors, right? We, why do people like nicotine and use tobacco? I mean, again, this is just another example of a plant that has been around forever that humans have used. And over time, these receptors have, been, have developed and been passed on. And so, you know, we're just starting to realize this, but, you know, you look at the history books, I mean, we, we know hemp and cannabis has been around for thousands of years. We know that, um, you know, in ancient China, they were using cannabis as a medicine, um, you know, about five or 6,000 years ago. I mean, as far as we have written records, there's been mention of cannabis use. And so it's not new. I mean, that, that's the issue. And, and I think people don't realize that it, it wasn't always illegal, right? It was made illegal in the late 1930s, but in the 1920s, you could buy cannabis tinctures in little glass bottles at pharmacies without a prescription. Wow. And, and that was just normal. And, it, you know, in the uh, pharmacopoeia of, of medicines that doctors use that have been around for you know, hundreds of years in the mid 1800s, cannabis was listed as a chemical that can be used to treat things like pain and inflammation and fevers and seizures. So, you know, we're, we're starting to recognize uh, with a little bit more accuracy what, what doctors and patients have known for, for a long, long time. Um, and so, you know, that's why it's, it's so unfortunate that this prohibition has lasted so long. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking 83 years of prohibition for a substance that is not deadly. And if you look back at alcohol prohibition, which lasted 13 years, and we've got something like 80,000 people in this country a year dying from alcohol use. And everyone's cool with that. You know, we even advertise it, right, in sports events and so on. Yeah. Um, so it, 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 it's, it's unfortunate. But I, I think that, again, as people get educated, and that's why I, I'm so happy to be part of this podcast. People are learning. This isn't just people want to get stoned. This is yeah. this is part of our human physiology. Yeah. This is this is real medicine, and there may be widespread applications, including for for athletes and and sports injuries. So I think the interest is growing, and people are having more normal conversations about it. And you know, I have all these older patients, grandmas and grandpas that are, that are, you know, now the, the new normal is, Hey, you know what? I, I use cannabis instead of opioids to treat my chronic arthritic back. And that's just wild. I mean, right. Right. see that happening. So that's a good segue into, uh, you know, Joe and I definitely wanted to bring you on because we work with that high school, college athletic population. You know, the kids are more exposed to this type of stuff. And then even, in the sports, not even just pro sports, but even more like endurance athlete stuff. You're seeing CBD products pop up. They're sponsoring athletes. You're seeing it in triathlon, Ironman, CrossFit, Spartan Race, all that type of stuff. And he's got, you know, they're promoting it and athletes are putting it on their Instagram, all that saying, I'm using my CBD droplets. I'm sleeping great at night, recovery. So can we go into a little bit about what you're seeing on how that could work? Is this like a little bit of a placebo? I mean, how do we 
you know, I guess like you said, because you have to regulate the doses. So I guess the athletes have to do a little bit of their research first and see if this is, you know, a company that's really looking a little more at the doses they're putting in. What are they giving them? Because, I mean, sometimes, you know, you're not careful at who your sponsorship is or giving your product. I mean, athletes have made a mistake and have used the wrong things before and they get tested. So yeah, exactly. it's interesting. You're starting to see it boom. So talk a little bit about that. And then also, I guess the best – way of dosage is sublingual they use the creams you know i think we talked about there's like gummies all that type of stuff yeah these are all great questions i mean i mean and i and i i'm you know as much as i want cbd and cannabis to be good for everything you know i i just i always have to kind of put the brakes on this conversation when people get a little bit too overzealous about what cbd is good for you know we we just have to recognize the fact that there have been no human clinical trials on CBD in athletes or sports injuries or arthritic conditions and so on. You know, it, it is really mostly anecdotal evidence. Uh, there, there is a basis for it, though. Again, there, there is a, there's a mechanism of action that has been shown in, in the animal model. And the question is, does that translate to humans? And in a lot of cases, things that work on animals, whether it's rats or monkeys or whatever, work for humans. And other times, we're just not the same, right? Um, but, but I think you have to be careful because, as mentioned before, CBD might have other, CBD products might have other cannabinoids in them. And even if it does come from hemp, uh, there is some THC in a lot of these products. And if you use enough CBD that has even small amounts of THC, depending on the accuracy and sensitivity of some of these uh, drug tests, you could test positive for THC. So obviously that's a concern for, you know, players in the NFL because they get tested. And so you could, you could get flagged for a failed drug test when all you were using was high dosages of CBD. Um, there, are, there are some companies that are able to remove the THC completely out of their product. Uh, but it's but it is in hemp, and you know the problem with it is it, it is a plant, and if you if you know anything about agriculture and gardening or farming, you know when you harvest these plants, there's so many conditions that can affect what the plant produces, and if you don't get it at the right time, it could have more or less THC or CBD in it, and um, that. To drug tested, um, but I think that um, that I think that there's a way to go about it. You know what I mean? I think that there's a, there's a safe way to go about trying a, a reliable hemp CBD product for for the athlete. And you know, again, there's still a little bit of unknown. But I, what I usually recommend, and I'll be the first to admit, I'm somewhat making this up, and part of it's based on what's available in pricing. But you know, some of the better companies for reasonable amounts of money can can get you a 25 to 30 milligram dose of cbd um i i think the sublingual route of delivery is probably one of the more efficient ways although you, you could theoretically so yeah these are these are you know oils that are placed under the tongue that get absorbed through blood vessels in your mouth and and don't have to pass through your gastrointestinal system and I think that one of the concerns is that when you put, when you swallow um, one of these medications, the, the question is how, how good are our bodies at absorbing? 
Mm. And I think like with any drug, you have people that respond to it and people that don't. So there's no perfect drug out there. There's no drug that works for everybody for every condition. And you're going to see some people that try great CBD products, healthy dosages, and just don't see anything happen. Um, and there are going to be some people that at certain dosages that are going to have some side effect, whether it's I felt tired, I've had people tell me they had nightmares. I mean, all sorts of weird stuff that you don't even know if it's related to the CBD. But the point is, there are people out there that are trying this and saying it either didn't work or caused side effects. Um, but nothing serious that I've seen. In, in some of the Epidiolex studies on the kids with seizures, they're using substantially higher dosages than people in the, in the general population. And there, there was some liver toxicity or, or increased liver enzymes in some of these kids. Um, but again, we're talking, you know, 300 or more milligrams. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so I think at these lower dosages that most people are purchasing, um, you know, 25 to 30 milligrams once, twice, or maybe even three times a day uh, might be reasonable. Uh, but, you know, there, there's just unfortunately a lot of myths out there. You know, there, there, there's people that say it's good for sleep, and there are a number of studies showing that it doesn't affect sleep at all. Um, you know, and I've, I'm, I've been trying to stay as up to date on this as possible. I, every year for the last four years, I've gone to the International Cannabinoid Research Society meeting, and there, there are always research um, uh, presentations on sleep. And, and just last year, there was one, and they, they literally looked, people were, were taking, I think, 300 milligrams of CBD. And there, there just wasn't a statistically significant amount of people that saw improved sleep. So it's a weird drug where sometimes more of it doesn't work better. You know, oftentimes there's sort of like a low dose that doesn't work and a high dose that doesn't work, but somewhere in the middle, there's more efficacy. And so you, you, we have to test all these different dosages on all these different medical conditions to come up with real guidelines. And because we don't have those guidelines, we're kind of, we're just, we're, we're, we're sort of making things up yeah. as we go. And I think there's a way to counsel patients on how to do this or athletes. And I think there's a way to do it on your own because you don't need a prescription. Um, but, but I think you need to pay attention to the dose and the route of the delivery is, is really important. I, I personally have not, I've seen more people tell me that CBD topically did not help them. I see some that do, but I, I see so many that think it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I've been very, very surprised to see how well topical THC works for some people. Uh, so I'm, I'm talking about the same people that told me CBD topically did nothing for me. They get certified for cannabis, they get a THC lotion, and they swear it works better than any topical they've ever used. So, so again, this is more anecdotal stories that I'm sharing with you. But, you know, after the, over the last two and a half years, I can say with confidence that I, I it seems to me that topical THC works better than topical CBD. Uh, and that's not for everyone. Some people think CBD topically works wonderful. Uh, but the question is, is that is that part placebo? But I think if you're going to ingest CBD, it's pro the, the best route of delivery may be the sublingual route. You know, because you 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 bypass the GI tract and liver metabolism, and in theory, you're getting it into your bloodstream if you're able to leave it under your tongue and in your mouth or oral mucosa for long enough. So, to me, it would make sense if you were maybe an athlete looking at pursuing this 
you'd want to ask the company where they're getting their sources from the plant. Is this something that is grown in a controlled environment? Is it in some field somewhere? Can they even give you those answers? Because I mean, I didn't know it was the same thing with nutrition companies. They are now providing where their food's coming from, the farms, the treatment of the animals that they're getting their food from. So people are starting to look a little more specific as to where the products are coming from. Yeah, you, you want to see a certificate, you know, of analysis from a third party. Okay. You know, and you, you, you have to trust that, you know, that third party has no financial interest in yeah. the, the, you know, the product success. And so, you know, that, that, that's really important. And I think that that's one of the easiest things that consumers can do. Uh, this is available online. You know, the, the sites that we've mentioned, you can, you can pick a product and there should be a, a certificate of analysis and you can see what's been tested for, what the dosages are, and then it's then it's a it's a little bit of trial and error. But I I think you know with a plant that's been around for thousands and thousands of years, most patients are unlikely to see problems come of of, of trying it. Um, but it's always going to be helpful to to get some input from a physician. The problem is there are very few physicians out there that have any knowledge about cannabinoids and cannabis medicine and um, even people like myself uh, who, who, who have experience there's still more questions than answers that we have and so you know little by little I think we're gaining more knowledge and and, and people are sharing their experiences um, but like I said one person's experience doesn't isn't always going to translate to the next hundred right. and um, you know, you want to see consistency, you know what I mean? And, and, and that's, that's where it's at. Are you still using other forms of pain management? Are you still prescribing like TENS units, traction units, things like that? I mean, are you kind of just, you know, looking a little more towards this or other things? I still, I, I mean, we use a multimodal uh, care plan. So it, it's really a combination of, you know, PT exercise-based treatments. I still prescribe NSAIDs, muscle relaxants sometimes. I, I prescribe a lot of neuropathic pain medications such as gabapentin and pregabalin. I mean, I, I, use, I use everything, but I try to limit my, my use of opioids. And, you know, I always try to guide patients to use, you know, the, the most conservative, least invasive treatment options first and foremost. And, un, and explain what what comes after that you know if if these initial treatments work if you can go to you know mike st george and get pt and take a couple advil and you're better why do anything beyond that right uh but 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 the reality is sometimes these things don't work or they don't work well enough and people are still having pain or limited function and so you know i definitely keep an open mind about about anything that might help, whether it's acupuncture, traction, chiropractic care, osteopathic manipulation. I, I think it's, it all has a place. Um, so but, can you describe when it would be appropriate to use an opioid, you know, and what that treatment cycle should look like? Because now people see opioids, they think 100% negative, I don't want that, as opposed to understanding when and where that should be implemented and why it's gotten far away and become abused. Yeah, I mean, look, the reality is as much as I'm a proponent for non-opioids and cannabis as treatment for chronic pain, almost every day I write an opioid prescription. Um, and, you know, a majority of the time I prescribe opioids for, you know, acute severe pain. 
whether it's from like a, a recent or new disc herniation, a work injury, um, a fracture. I, I prescribe can, uh, opioids for, for compression fractures of the spine and post-surgical pain. But, you know, I think our conversation with patients has changed. And the, and the, and the, the take-home message is the longer you're on opioid pain medications, the more risk there is. You know, there's a, there's a huge potential for uh, opioid dependence, uh, even after taking these medicines for a week or two. I mean, seven to 10 days, some people are going to start to have, you know, physical dependence on this medicine which can lead to misuse, abuse, um, addiction, and potentially accidental overdose, overdose and death. And so when you explain that to patients, it scares them in a, in a good way. And people, uh, there's these medications work great for, for acute pain. And, I, and, I, and I'll be the first to admit that cannabis and CBD probably isn't that effective for very acute pain. You don't want to wake up from surgery and be handed some CBD gummies or even a THC capsule. You know what I mean? Because opioids work great when you wake up from anesthesia and you just were cut open or if you fell and broke your arm. I mean, there's a real role for them, but there's risks, there's side effects. And so, you know, we just tell people, you know, we get, we're going to give you a limited amount of opioids, we're gonna recommend you use them only if you need them and to try other things first if you can. And the sooner you can reduce your dosages and stop using the medicine, the better. You know, I think that, that message resonates with people and um, I think it's been really effective. And we, we, we have found that you know, people are listening to this conversation more seriously now than ever and, and, and taking into consideration these alternatives. So where could an athlete or anyone that, that is in pain that, that is looking to seek alternative ways, how could they find you? I mean, it's pretty easy. You know, Rothman Orthopedics has a, a variety of ways of scheduling appointments. There's an 800 number. It's 321-9999. We do um, on our website. You can schedule appointments online. Um, but yeah, our, our, our call center gets a, gets a, gets a lot of action every day. And, you know, we, we do the best that we can to get patients to see the, the right type of physician for their, for their problem. Um, currently I'm the only physician at Rothman Orthopedics that does cannabis certifications, but we are actually looking to expand the program because it's been so successful. And so uh, about 10 or so of my colleagues uh, have been interested in, in, in being able to recommend and certify patients for access to cannabis. So, you know, with that, I think is going to come um, more research opportunities, because like I said, we're, we're trying to collect outcome measures and really important data about what patients are using and, and, and how that affects their pain and function scores, uh, which dosages cause side effects and intoxication and which dosages don't. That's going to help us create guidelines for, for other physicians and how to recommend it. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's, that's, that's part of, you know, being, you know, if you, if you want to be part of this progress that we're making, you know, yeah, you can get, you can get certified by, by anyone doc in a box or something like that. Um, but, but being part of the, the research, I think is helpful, you know, and I think people like it. They, they take it seriously. They, it takes a few extra minutes to fill out these questionnaires, but, um, 
you know, they're getting something out of it and they're seeing the results, uh, whether they work or they're not, they're, they're figuring out, you know, which products didn't help their pain or didn't help them sleep and which products were great. Um, and, and, and I think that the more data we have, the more we can kind of push for changes, you know, in our, in our legal system. And um, that's going to just open up more opportunities for, for, again, research and help more patients over time. So what is your time going to look like now if you're working with the Philadelphia Eagles? You're going to be split time in the office, time down at the you know, Novacare complex, at the stadium. Like what, you know, I guess if the season picks up, will you be on the field with them? I mean, you know, and then what type of conversations you having with these guys? Um, because I know over the years I've learned – Sometimes working with a professional athlete can be a little tough because, you know, these guys have their ways, they're making the millions, and they're going to say, who are you to tell me what to do, man? So you got to, like, you know, listen, dude. So Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, for right now, I, my clinic is pretty much the same as it's ever been, but I'm, I'm available basically as a consultant to the, the Eagles players, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll go down there during the season uh, periodically to check in and just to be available. Um, you know, there, there are times where the medical staff, you know, has um, some, some difficult cases some problems handling pain. And, you know, they're looking for just, a, you know, a curbside console. It's just a quick phone call with the medical staff, the other docs, the trainers, or, or the player themselves. But, you know, more and more people have questions about cannabis and CBD and a lot, a lot, of, a lot of players are interested in using it, but they're concerned about the drug testing and things like that. I think the NFL as a league is uh, becoming more interested in uh, studying uh, CBD uh, or, or at least in research that's being done outside of the league that might be pertinent to athletes and sports performance and recovery. Um, so again, a lot of it's having the type of conversations that we're having right now, you know, how to, where to source it, and, and, and how to give it an honest chance at working with regards to dosing and routes of delivery. Um, but, but I think my role um, with the Eagles is going to evolve over time. And, and I think some of that has to do with potential changes in, in the way the league views CBD. But you know, it's interesting in my mind to see how, you know, we know CBD does something for seizure disorders, which is obviously a brain disorder. And, you know, concussion is a big concern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're looking at any research into concussion. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a potential research opportunity is to see right. if, you know, CBD might help recovery from, from head injury, concussion, and so on. Um, but, but, yeah, there is something about cannabis that, you know, again, has been shown to, to have neuroprotective properties. And um, I, I think that it is, it's, it's a real opportunity to look at a substance that, you know, is less harmful than other pharmaceuticals and recreational drugs. And um, I, I, like I said, I think the next few decades of, of science and research is, is going to really open the door for a lot of other um, treatments. Awesome. That is some good stuff right there, baby. Yeah, man. That is some good stuff, man. Michael, we're just, I don't know, we're on a roll here. We get Rothman doctors. We get people from the University of Villanova. Like, we're, this is good stuff. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely an awesome opportunity when Excel was contracted with Rothman to be able to get in there because I networked with so many 
of docs like Dr. Grice, you know, and then, you know, your colleagues. Who are you uh, mostly working with now? Who's uh, in the posse where you're uh, hanging out? Man, it's constantly changing. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, we, we, we've grown so much since you were around. Um, yeah. It's wild, but you know, I, my, my, my region, which is basically, I'm kind of spread out. I'm in, I'm in the city one day a week uh, at our Ninth and Chestnut office. I'm uh, out in King of Prussia one day, and then I'm in uh, Bryn Mawr. So okay. I have a nice little spread, because um, you know, each office is unique in its own right and draws from different parts of the, the area. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm so fortunate. I have so many great colleagues to lean on, great surgeons to refer to. And um, they've been all so supportive of, of, of this cannabis program. I mean, most of the people who I've certified come from referrals from my colleagues. You know, yep. it is some of my own patients, but I'm not pushing this on anyone. Right. And the conversation just comes up, whether it's a, a patient bringing it up at, hey, what about medical cannabis for pain? I know it's a qualifying condition in, in the state of Pennsylvania. I know people that say it helped. What do you think? Almost across the board, most of my colleagues are supportive of this idea that it, that it might be worth trying, that it's a, it's a safer alternative to opioids. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons, that's one of the main reasons that I, I have so many patients and, 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 and a good amount of experience doing this. Um, but it is, uh, it's, it's been rewarding. I mean, we, we, have, we have data showing that you know, large percentages of people who were on opioids before their cannabis uh, certification visit are off their opioids six, within six months. Uh, and, and the ones that are still on an opioid have reduced their dosages, you know, sometimes by 40-50%. So, and that's huge because I, I don't have anything against opioids. If, if there, are, there are small patient populations of people that have chronic pain that can take an opioid at a low dose for years and years and years without escalating their dose and they get relief. It helps improve their pain and function. But the risk is those people that escalate, you know, right? The, the accidental overdoses don't happen from people taking five or 10 milligrams of oxycodone. It's the people that start off on those dosages that end up on 40, 60, 80 milligrams and then sometimes, unfortunately, transition to things like heroin. Right. And, you know, that, that's the danger where you can accidentally overdose. Yeah. Um, oftentimes from going to rehab and stopping your opioid use and then getting a rehab to use to before rehab. And, and then having an accidental overdose where you basically stop breathing. So isn't it the dependency that happens with these opioids almost create this chemical change in your body where it becomes dependency because I know when I have listened to even people talk about when they've recovered from addiction how hard it is even yes like heroin the withdrawal that your body goes through because eventually it becomes more than just a high and going out and having fun and partying these people have actually said it becomes I needed it to function and when they don't the withdrawal is like hell and the rehab to go through is tough. So some of them, it's almost like you got to do a cold turkey, but it's like going through hell basically. No, pe people continue their opioid use, you know, uh, oftentimes just to avoid um, the, the horrible withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. I mean, people, it's known as dope sickness, but, when, you know, you basically feel sicker than you've ever 
felt yeah. the worst flu of your life. And when you take your, your pills, your medication, you feel normal again. Yeah. So, so yeah, that physical dependence is real. And a lot of people uh, do it just to feel normal. Um, but, but again, the risk is at these higher dosages. And so if you can get people who are on moderate dosages and are at risk for increasing, if you can get them down to more reasonable levels of opioids, they're safe. They're completely safe. Um, but there are just unfortunately, you know, small percentages of the population that are prone to addiction. Yeah. And, and we, we have to recognize that. I mean, it's not their fault. It's their genetics. It's a medical condition. And we should treat it like one. You know, they're not criminals. They don't mean to be hurting themselves or other people. But, you know, it's a vicious cycle. And, and so, you know, pe people are very happy to be off an opioid that they were on for years. I mean, it's, it's, it's free, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, you're, you're really, you know, you're, you're dependent on a drug. You can't live your life the way you want to live. You're always thinking about, well, am I going to run out of my medication? To have that off your mind is, is, is liberating. And, and I think a lot of people just are thankful for that opportunity to try something as an alternative. And there's some interesting uh, uh, data on opioids and cannabinoids and basically showing that, you know, oftentimes people that, that use cannabis are able to reduce their opioid dosages. And one of the ways that they do that is because cannabis can sometimes help with withdrawal symptoms, you know, and can calm you. And so, you know, that can help people avoid going back to their pills. Um, so it's interesting. And um, I think that uh, it, it's just a widespread issue that we have. And um, we have to come up with new, better ways of dealing with it. Well, I'll tell you what, we would love to have you back on after you do some more research on this. And, yeah. And, um, yeah. Um, you know, so. Of course. Yeah, this is, this is, this is great stuff. And obviously with this, we understand that, you know, it takes time. You got to have the, the data behind it and, and, you know, do more testing. But I would be curious to see uh, if the NFL does more of this to help with concussions. That's an interesting topic yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. I think, that, I think that'll be neat. And I think, um, you know, I think a lot of players leave the league and they're pretty banged up. And, you know, you know we, we see – you know, the glory on Sundays of these players and celebrating and it looks great, but you know what, like at the end of the day, a, a lot of these guys, their bodies are, are, are beat up and the arthritic conditions that they suffer from at much younger ages than the regular population. Uh, and and that, that's something that they have to deal with for the rest of their lives. And so, you know, a lot, a lot of these guys are, they, they you know, they, they take great care of their bodies, but the nature of the sport is, everyone is getting injured you know it's a, it's a hundred percent injury rate and it's just how do you recover from these injuries on a weekly basis how do you get sleep at night to recuperate and and i think that's why you know things like cannabis and cbd uh have you know interest you know, there's a lot of interest in them because you know they're just they're just repercussions of a lot of these other drugs um and uh it'll it'll be very interesting to see how you know, the professional sports teams, not just the NFL, um, you know, approach cannabis as an alternative to opioids. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of money in these leagues that could help support research. So, 
you know, I, I think it'll be very interesting to see how things progress. And I would love to come back on the show and, and report back. I'm also interested to hear what you guys are seeing because, you know, stories about people who are excelling in their sport and their stories about the supplements and their routines, it's, it's all fascinating. Uh, you know, whether it's their diet or their, their, their workout routines, their rehab program. And then what are they doing to treat pain, recovery, inflammation, sleep, all that. It's, it's really fascinating stuff. Well, I'll tell you what, if you guys do develop a product, you better believe Jerry Jones will get his hand in that pot and be the first one. <laughs> Man, that guy's out of control. I ran a Spartan race there last year in the stadium, and that facility is just insane. I mean, I'd love to see that. Yeah. About the money. But, um, I mean, this is why we like bringing on individuals like yourself onto the podcast because, you know, podcasts are really blown up probably. I mean, Joe Rogan started. That's real popular. But now you're starting to get these more individualized ones, and there's some that are really, really big, probably, like, nationally listened to. And then there's some a little bit more regional. And I yeah. think ours right now is beneficial regionally where we could get the greater Philadelphia area to start tuning in so we could start helping to talk about this and get, you know – the athletes, the kids, the therapists, you know, parents to start listening and kind of getting educated because there's so many patients that I have a conversation with that just don't know. They don't know. And if they could listen to a local podcast of, you know, facilities and, and, and companies and people that they're familiar with, um, it's a little bit more trustworthy. So be more invested in their time, but they can learn a little bit and say, wow, I didn't know that and be directed in the right direction. Um, you know, because there's so many people that just don't know like basic things. I don't even know where to go to find a good physician. So now at this point in my career, it's good to say, yeah, go see Dr. Grice for this or go see this person for that, you know, because I, I've worked with them. I know. And then, Hey, listen to this podcast because here's some good knowledge for you. It's 30 minutes to an hour. Just sit and listen to it. Especially now during this time where everything is kind of shut down a little bit, people have a little more time, you know, go outside and listen to this on a walk or something and learn a little bit because that's the only way I think things are going to expand is through talking about this because we live in an age where the knowledge is all out there. And Joe and I talk about this all the time. I mean, with the social media platforms, there's information everywhere, but what's the right information and what's garbage. So if we could find credible sources, get people's ears to listen to that. They're going to learn more and make better decisions, you know? No doubt. And I think I love what you guys are doing and really just what you said. It's just, it's having normal conversations about this, right? I mean, we, we talked about the stigma around cannabis and hemp, and, and, and all it takes is, you know, normal people talking about this plant and, you know, discussing its history and discussing its pros and cons and, and, and not being sort of like too overzealous about uh, what it is and what it's good for. You know, I, I think people debate uh, all the time now about everything. And I, I think we can all agree that, you know, health, our health matters more than anything. And we, we're all looking for an edge, whether it's in sports or at work. Uh, but but, but we, we all need more sleep than we're getting. And we all want to exercise more. Uh, but we're also all aging. And, you know, whether you're a young kid who gets injured playing sports, or you're you know, someone in their mid forties, like myself, who's still trying to be an athlete, but dealing with some of the, you know, early degenerative stuff, we all want to maintain our functional capabilities and enjoy our lives. And, and we have decisions to make when, when, when we get injured or when we have some pain and, and really 
That's what this conversation is about. How do you make the right decision? What's the safest, you know, uh, treatment option and what's going to be the most effective? And, you know, the benefit of medicine is, is really that we, we focus on science and real results. And, you know, there, there's a huge difference between, you know, a crappy research study and a really high quality research study. And when you discuss, you know, the way that we've studied cannabinoids and the human body uh, in the animal models, and then hopefully moving forward more in human clinical trials, you know, we're gonna just have so much more um, data to share. And I think that the, the stigma will just kind of go away because people are gonna just think of this as, you know, a medicine in its own right, um, with the understanding that people use cannabis recreationally. And I, and I think, you know, there's a role for that as well, right? People use lots of drugs. And the reality is a lot of it's as a stress reliever, right? People think of having alcohol after work just to relax. And I think it's the same idea that people that use cannabis as a relaxant, you know, it, it, it you know, there's a fine line between the medicinal use of a product and a, and a recreational use. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's all in the, 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 the way you think of it, really. Cheech and Chong blowout. Yeah, but, 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 you know, there's a difference between getting high and acting like an idiot. Yeah. And, you know, having no memory of what happened to you that day. Right. And using a little bit of THC to get a good night's sleep. There's, yeah, a, there's yeah. a distinct difference or using THC to feel drowsy while you watch, you know, a couple hours of television before going to bed. You know what I mean? The, the, you know, there's a way, what I try to explain to my patients is, you know, there's a way to use THC and CBD where you're not intoxicated or impaired, but you might feel relaxed. You might feel happy. You yeah. might find some pleasure in it. Right. And, and I think we can all agree that, that's okay, right? We, we all want to be happy. We all want to feel less stress. Yep. And, um, you know, figuring out how to accomplish that without harming your body is really important. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if your go-to is I need to drink a six-pack of beer to relax at the end of the day, you know, that your liver's not going to be happy after a number of years. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, these are real decisions that people have to make. And we just want to be open and honest about this discussion. And I think it's going to help people um, make, make their own decisions that are best for them. Great stuff. Dr. Grice, I really appreciate your time tonight. Dr. Mike, as always, I appreciate your time. Where can people find you, Mike? Uh, Instagram, Icore underscore St. George. Uh, I'm on Facebook, but not really on that recently. Facebook's so toxic right now. You just go there if you want to. I don't know, do what, whatever. <laughs> same thing as taking a six pack to the face. You're going to get the same result. Feel really trashed after. So I'm mostly Instagram. Uh, we post stuff like this, the fitness stuff, the workouts, and also the rehab stuff. So, cool. Dr. Grice, are you on social media? You know, I don't post much. I do have a, 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 a Dr. Ari Grice Instagram. Um, you know, I, I mostly post stuff related to the, the cannabis work that I'm doing. Okay. Um, but I'm, I'm not a heavy poster, but I, I, I'm on there and, I, and I'm, I'm going to, I hope to do more, but, uh, garage workouts, man. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. All, All right. right. You got to post your garage workouts. There you go. There you I don't go. know if people want to see that, but we'll see. <laughs>
You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. <laughs> you can find me at uh, Coach underscore Haas. That's Coach underscore Haas on Instagram. Uh, guys, great night. Have a great weekend. And Dr. Grice, thank you again for your time. Thanks for having me, guys. Take Thank care. You. We're out. I'll see you. Have a good one.